Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and today I'm here with Jacob Gourneau, a research assistant at the California Academy of Sciences. He's here today to tell me about his paper in Volume 51, Issue 201, of Shylab Revista de Lepidopterologica, in which he and his co-authors describe three new species of Argyrestria moths from Guatemala. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. I'm excited to chat with you. Um, First of all, can you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are, what you do. Yeah, I'll do a little bit of that. And then I'll also share how we met because I think it's a pretty like (laughs) wild story. Um, But I am currently in between my master's and my PhD. So I got my master's a few months ago in December and am about to be starting in August as a PhD student at Berkeley. So I'll stay in the Bay Area. I did my master's at San Francisco State. And I really got interested in, I would say, bugs generally as like a little kid. I grew up in upstate New York, which if you haven't been, it's not like New York City at all. It's a very rural area that is very inaccessible to a lot of like different things that you would normally entertain a child with. And so like what that meant for me was that I ended up spending a lot of time just outside, like playing around with bugs that I found in the dirt and like just trying to like see what I could see around my house. And I think like something that I learned really quickly was that no matter how many times I went outside, I could always see like a new insect. And at that point, it was particularly moths that I was interested in and um Kind of later on in my high school years when I realized that you could study entomology as a career, I was like, okay, well, I still have this thing where I'm absolutely terrified of spiders, and this is something that I need to overcome. And so knowing that there aren't really many spiders in New York that are dangerous, I would just catch them by hand and take a look at them. And I ended up like falling in love with spiders as well. And so I did my senior thesis on um, spider evolution or phylogenetics and kind of worked both in spiders and moths um, throughout undergrad. And so this project is actually not part of my master's, but um, some remaining um, loose ends from my undergrad studies at Cornell. Um, Since then, I've been working mostly on arachnids, um, mostly their phylogenetics and evolution, and I'll be working primarily on scorpions, um, this group of scorpions called Forest Scorpions in California for my PhD, investigating also conservation implications of them. And we know each other in kind of a funny way. Yeah, yeah. So um, essentially, I think like during the pandemic, a lot of conferences were, of course, held virtually. And um, we both 
not having met each other, attended the um, Entomological Collections Network meeting, um, which is a, I would say a fairly niche meeting of people who are both interested in natural history collections as well as entomology. And I think like a day or two into the conference, I actually got like a message from you on Twitter and you were like, um, hey, I'm just reaching out. Like, did your did your family like come down from like Nova Scotia or something? And I was like, I mean, I know that like my family came from Canada and in, into Maine at some point in our history, but like I didn't know. And so I think we did some pretty light detective work to find out that our great grandparents were brothers. And so I think that makes us third cousins. I can't remember the exact permutation, but we're both spider people. We're both collections people. And we're also somehow related in this wild way. Yeah, I do feel like it's a, like a really strange game of odds for that all to, to happen. So it was really cool. I just like thought that was so neat that we we are like tangentially related. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it's like, it just like still like blows my mind to this day. And like, it's it's also a good like party story because it's kind of wild that like I have an arachnologist cousin that I didn't know I had. For the niche uh, arachnology parties that we both attend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So can you talk about this group of moths that you and your co-authors worked on for this paper? Um, can you start by just giving us an overview? Like, are they, are they common? Are they well-studied? What are they? Yeah, so um, these, these moths, um, they are in the genus Argyrestia, which is, to me, kind of is just like verbally falling down the stairs. And um, they are the only genus in the family Argyrestheidae. And so um, often in taxonomy, we will consider that monotypic or monogeneric meaning that like there's really only one lineage within the family. And there are about a little over 200 species in the group. They are fairly common where they're found. And the highest diversity right now is both in North America and temperate Europe. Um, but we do think that that is like a bias of where people have historically been studying these moths because they're incredibly small. Um, and so... Oftentimes, I think that it's it's just a factor of sampling effort that like the diversity is higher in temperate Europe as well as North America. Um, they're very small. They are generally their wingspan is only about a centimeter. So kind of think of like the base of your nail bed up to the part that comes level with the tip of your finger. And that's basically their wingspan. And so they're really, really hard to see. They do have a common name. They're called shiny headstanding moths, which again is also like pretty convoluted, but it refers to this posture that they take when they um, aren't flying. Oftentimes, like different groups of moths will like um, stand or sit, however you'd like to call it, um, in a specific way. And um, the way that these moths do it is they essentially look like they're doing like a yoga pose. They have their head face down with whatever like substrate they've landed on and they have their wings kind of folded together like a burrito and then their um, butt is like sticking in the air. And so they're called these like headstanding moths because of this like really unique posture. And so I mentioned there are a little over 200 species. They 
includes some species that have, or at least are thought to have went extinct. Um, one was thought to be a specialist on um, the American chestnut and with the decimation of American chestnut populations, it's thought that that species has went extinct. And then kind of on the other end of the spectrum, there are also several species in the group that are agricultural pests as well. And so you've got kind of a whole wide range of interactions with humans, whether from a conservation angle or more agroecological angle. Are they just in agricultural environments? Like where would you actually find them? Yeah, so they're mostly common in forested regions. They um, are um, called leaf or needle miners because the larvae will like essentially um, feed on the inside of the tissue. And so if you've ever like seen a leaf with a bunch of like weird squiggles in it, like there are a lot of moths and flies that do that. But this is one group that does do that both in leaves as well as in needles of um, coniferous trees as well. And so um, they're mostly forested regions, and then they do end up ending up in like agricultural, but mostly on trees. So a lot of um, cherry and apple um, crops can be affected by members of the genus Argyrestia, but that's essentially the crash course on their natural history. Wow, especially the part about the needles it blows my mind just to think like truly how small they are. Yeah, absolutely. And like, um, of course, like they're really hard to see as adult moths because they're so small, but um, also as caterpillars, it's also a really subtle thing. You got to be looking for a specific, oftentimes those leaf miners will kind of make a pretty specific um, mining pattern or um, other type of damage to either a leaf or a needle and you have to really develop a search image for that if you're looking for the larvae, especially. Yeah. So how do you collect them? Do you look for the larvae? Do you look for the adults? Yeah. Oftentimes what we'll do is look for the adults um, just because that tends to be a easier way of collecting. You essentially can put up a blacklight and hang up a white bed sheet and you'll have a ton of insects, especially moths, um, be attracted to this because insects kind of have their vision a little bit shifted from what humans can see. And so it's um, shifted away from the visible color red that we can see, they cannot see, and more into the ultraviolet. And so Although a black light might look really dim to us, so much so that we call it a black light, it's actually this like really strong beacon of light that um, is very attractive to moths and other insects. And so a lot of it is kind of just hanging up a light somewhere that you know that their habitat is, somewhere that you know that someone's collected them at that time that you're also happen to be out and kind of hoping that like, you incidentally run into one of these moths. There are also, for the more agricultural pests, there are, um, I believe, pheromone traps that are also used. I don't know if I've seen any work seeing how specific or general those pheromone traps are. So in the future, that could also be another avenue of collecting them. If these pheromone traps are pretty general, it might be able to collect other species that aren't necessarily agriculturally important, but are still in the genus. And these were collected in Guatemala. What kind of ecosystem? Where were they collected? 
Uh, yeah, so these were collected in um, forested regions in Guatemala. I believe they were all collected in fairly, like, at least mid to high elevation forests. And so these um, forests are much more similar to a um, temperate environment than they are, like, a very, like, dense tropical rainforest environment. And so um, that is also seems to be a little bit consistent with um, knowing that a lot of the diversity is quite high in the temperate Europe in North America. And so, um, yeah, they were found, I think, around 2,500 meters at the highest and around 1,500 meters at the lowest. And so um, pretty high up, especially, um, especially in terms of like a tropical environment. And they were collected in 2014. They were brought back to Cornell. Um, and then you and your collaborators examined them in two different ways. Um, you had to diagnose them. You had to identify them, dissect them. Um, and then also you did some barcoding. So can you tell me about those two processes? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I worked with um, I worked with my um, boss in the Cornell Insight Collection, um, Jason Dombrowski, on this project. And we ended up also involving um, our collaborators, um, Lauren Jones and Jose Monzon Sierra. And essentially Jason and I wanted to work on this group because this is a group that hasn't thoroughly been studied in the Americas in over a hundred years. And so there's a lot of, even in North America, a lot of questions that need to be answered about the taxonomy of this group and how um, different species are related to each other. But essentially, Jason and I, Jason had these specimens and he was like, okay, it looks like no one has ever described any Argyresia from all of Central America. And so like, chances are like, just by factor of that, that it's a new species. But of course, um, you can't just because you found something in a new place, describe it as a new species. Um, this could be a species that's known from South America that actually ranges much further north than we've thought, or vice versa. It could be from North America and ranges further south than we thought, especially since it's higher elevation, it's cooler, it's likely much more similar to um, temperate North America. And then there's always the chance that, oh, some of these are agricultural pests, so it could have come in on some sort of shipping container that was also holding um, these plants. And so all of these like potential reasons are why we couldn't just outright describe them without consulting any other analysis. And so essentially what we did was we collated a list of all of the species known from um, South America, which is only seven. The last time something was described from South America was, I believe, 1919. And then all of the species from North America, which is a little bit over 50. And we essentially just did a quick like comparison of these images. Some of the images we couldn't find online. So actually, while Jason was visiting the British Museum, he was able to get some pictures of the holotypes, which is essentially a specimen that is used to kind of describe the essence of a species. It's kind of like the archetype of like what you think this species is. And he was able to get pictures of those. And we were able to basically just do a quick comparison. And what we wanted to do there was be like, okay, are there any remote possibilities that this is 
one of these already described species. And then once we were able to narrow that down, um, we then performed dissections to make sure that the morphological similarities um, or differences were, were kind of consistent with what we were thinking. And so um, in doing that, we dissected the abdomens of all of these moths. And in order to do that, we essentially dilute some potassium hydroxide, soak the specimen, and it basically only leaves the hardened parts of the exoskeleton left. And the good thing is that often these hardened parts of the exoskeleton are the most important for um, identifying a new species. And so a lot of moth taxonomy is kind of operating under this locking key theory that although male and female genitalia might look different across different species, within a species, there's relatively consistent um, locking key structures um, for the genitalia. And so we soaked it in this potassium hydroxide, and then we added um, some chemical dyes to really bring out the structures that we wanted to observe. And it seems like for this group, what we've noticed is that the male genitalia is not necessarily useful. It looks pretty similar across most of the species, but the female genitalia, there's essentially this um, structure that looks like a bag called a corpus bursi. And within that structure, there is a sclerotized or hardened part called a um, signum. And this signum seems to vary in shape um, in a way that's like pretty consistent with like what we think are different species. And so once we kind of picked up on that, that was like one of the main things from a morphological perspective that like we wanted to um, look into. And do you have a male and a female for each of these new species? Uh, that's the other thing too. So that is like the gold standard that you would like to have. Um, but for a couple of our new species, like um, one, we only had one specimen from, and then others, they're also incredibly, if you can imagine the wingspan being as small as essentially your nail, like the their genitalia is like incredibly, incredibly small and like is really difficult to work with. And so like we had a pretty small series or number of specimens that we were working with and there were a decent amount of cases that like I screwed up a dissection just because it's so small, like any movement of your hands that are unwelcome, like working under a microscope to dissect this can like destroy the genitalia for um, observation. And so I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was it was really difficult. A lot of like sweaty moments over a microscope. <laughs> But um, so, yeah, there were some cases where we only had um, one, one sex. One species, the Argyresia um, quetzal tenanganella, uh, we only had a male. And so we kind of knew that the male was not as, or the male genitalia was not as good at distinguishing a species. And so what we also wanted to do was like do other analyses to make sure that at least other lines of evidence were um, demonstrating that this was likely a different species. And so some of those other analyses that we did um, were barcoding, as you mentioned, and barcoding is essentially 
sequencing this like really common gene called cytochrome C oxidase subunit one. And it's often just called CO1. And this gene is about um, 650 base pairs in length. And it's been found to be pretty um, consistent with like our perceptions of what a species is. And so oftentimes if you sequence this region within a species, it's pretty similar and nearly identical, but even with a closely related species, there are enough differences um, that you're able to recognize it as a different barcode. And so similar to real barcodes where they might look all the same to you at face value, if you really start delving into it, there are slight differences that allow a system like the barcode scanner or um, a taxonomist to identify um, these differences. And it's not a hard and fast rule, like a lot of barcoding also can um, either overestimate or underestimate even in some cases species diversity. And so um, that's why it's important to combine these other um, lines of evidence, such as the genitalia morphology, even the, um, the actual like coloration and pattern of the moth um, is incredibly important. And so it's important to integrate all of those things. And so after sequencing the barcode, um, we inferred a phylogeny, which is essentially a hypothesis of evolutionary history. This allows us to essentially identify what these species are most closely related to. And so that's important because if this species was, or if these samples were essentially most closely related to members of a different species and so much so that like it was really kind of nested within all of these members of a species that we know exists that would indicate to us that this probably isn't a new species it could just be this like weird variant of something that we already know um or a new subspecies within this group and so um it's just really important to combine those multiple lines and we were able to identify a hypothesized position um, for them in the phylogeny, um, but only using one gene is often not the gold standard for phylogenetics. Um, with my master's, we did some spider phylogenetics and we looked at anywhere from 520 to um, almost 1300 genes. And so as sequencing technology is improving, like that's becoming more possible. Although this might not be telling the whole story, it's really great to have an initial hypothesis because we didn't really have one to begin with. And you mentioned earlier that these moths have uh, sometimes very specific relationships with host plants, like that example that you mentioned with the American chestnut and then the moth going possibly extinct as a result of not having that host plant around. Did you collect any data on the host plants? Could you even? Um, and then is that like an area of future study for these moths? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's like a really important avenue of future study um, because, um, yeah, they are really specialized, which um, you might expect if they're mining into a leaf, they're going to have to be pretty familiar with that host plant in order to do that successfully. And um, these um, moths in particular, we weren't able for our new species from Guatemala um, to observe them as caterpillars. Um, there's actually no photos of them live. 
And um, like basically the photos that we have of the specimens are like the first photos and they've only been seen alive when they were collected. Um, and so it's kind of a black box in terms of understanding what their host plants are. But in order to kind of get a little bit of insight into that, we used the phylogeny that we had and we combined that with all known records of host plants for this group. And so of the about 200 species, we have host plant records for about 70. And so oh, wow. um, it's a decent amount. It's not anywhere close to being all of them, but um, we essentially removed all of the species in the phylogeny that we didn't have host plant records for. And then we basically mapped the host plants for each species on the phylogeny. And that allowed us to essentially see what these ancestral states are. And so ancestral states are essentially like, what did the most common ancestor of these two species, based on like what we know about the living species, what did that ancestor have as a behavior or a host plant, et cetera. And so by working backwards and doing this ancestral mapping of host plants, we were able to notice that there seems to be two main groupings within this genus. There's a grouping that is primarily um, rose feeding. So they feed on members of the rosaceae, which includes um, apples, cherries, plums. And then there is also a group that is primarily um, conifer feeding. And so that was really interesting because we were able to confirm what we know at the species level about this like close association with host plants at a level that's like more deep in time because we were able to identify these entire groups of species very likely had um, a common ancestor that also fed on um, some sort of conifer. And we were able to use the larger phylogeny that had things that we didn't know host plants for. We were able to use that to kind of estimate what we thought these species we're feeding on. So in some cases, we were like, this species probably feeds on some sort of conifer, and these are the species of conifer in the area. And so it's not perfect, but it might be a really good like breadcrumb for a future researcher to find these species, like actually living in the wild and mining the leaves or needles that they are. Um, and speaking of future research, uh, where were your types deposited? Yeah, so our types were deposited at, primarily the holotypes were deposited at the Cornell University Insight Collection, um, where all of the research was done. And then we've also sent for those samples that we do have multiple um, specimens for, we sent um, paratypes, which are essentially just like other members that were used to describe the species that aren't the holotype. We sent two to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and then we've also sent two to um, the Universidad del Valle de Guatemala collection of arthropods. Apologies for the pronunciation, but um, yeah, we wanted to make sure that like in the cases that we did have multiple specimens that there were paratypes available like in the country that they were collected um, because it's most likely that like future biodiversity work being done on this group like should be focused locally. We've discussed that on this podcast before. Um, I think it's important to deposit types 
uh, back in their country of origin so that local scientists can study the species around them. Absolutely. I like agree 100%. And um, that even like factored into our decision to publish with this journal Shylap. They very generously provide a service where they translate your abstract to Spanish or Portuguese primarily. And um, that was like really important to us because um, we wanted to make sure that at least for the predominant language in Guatemala being Spanish, we wanted to make sure that um, this biodiversity information was accessible to um, many folks in the country that these specimens came from. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us about how you named these species? Yeah, um, that's great. So essentially, um, we named these species kind of a little bit for like three different reasons. And so the first species um, we named and described was Argyrestia um, Quetzaltenango-Nala. And um, I really specifically named this after the department in Guatemala that this species was found from. It was found only at one locality in Quetzaltenango. And so that was kind of my reasoning for um, describing that species with that name. I felt like um, the kind of cadence and the poetic, like, stumbling down the stairs of Argyrestia kind of combined quite well with this beautiful Quetzaltenanganella species epithet. And then another species we described was um, Argyrestia Guatemala. And I really wanted to like highlight Guatemala as the country where these specimens were described because, as I mentioned, no Central American species have been described before this paper. And so I really wanted that to be especially apparent when someone's scrolling through a checklist of species in this group to really recognize that there are Central American species in this group because um, that diversity has not been recognized by taxonomists before this. And then the last, the third species that we described in this paper, I named um, Argyrestia iridescentia. Um, and this was not necessarily a testament to where it was found, but more of how it appeared. Um, the other two species, they have distinct patterns and kind of somewhat high contrast um, wing appearances. Um, but Argyrestia iridescentia, it looked originally to me like this like really, really kind of drab, like brownish gray moth that like Honestly, I was like just very much struggling to find any sort of like thing to say about how it looked. Um, but once I put it under the microscope, oftentimes you'll have these kind of two snake-like looking um, powerful lights that you'll kind of hold over your specimen under a microscope. And once I had all of that light on the specimen, it really like illuminated and took on this like really shimmery gold appearance. And so um, I wanted to highlight in the species name um, iridescentia the fact that it's really iridescent. It might really appear um, drab in some lighting, but under the right lighting, it can really glisten and look golden. Uh, and there are some pictures in your paper, um, and I, I think it's a really beautiful moth. I'm a, I'm a fan. I like. I will say that like I'm biased, but. Um, <laughs> I, I think they're beautiful. I think like their patterns are so in intricate for something so small. And um, they're really like these little like gems that you can only see 
well under a microscope. And I think that's amazing. There are all sorts of reasons that research happens, but why do you think that this particular study uh, was important? And why do you think the discovery of biodiversity matters? That That is a good question. And it is a hard question, but I think it is something that like biodiversity scientists should be prepared to answer because it's really at the forefront of um, what we're doing. And so um, at a very specific level, um, these moths are include species of conservation concern, so much so that they've went extinct, as I mentioned earlier, and others that are of um, agricultural concern, um, because we want to make sure that these species are not introduced in places that they could really devastate crops. And so kind of on both ends there, um, studying this group is really important because we want to know what species are maybe not pests right now, but are more susceptible to being pests in certain regions if they're accidentally introduced. And then also identifying um, species that might be of conservation concern as well. I think another consideration is that this is a group that like reflects a broader trend in um, taxonomy where um, you have this appearance that diversity is greatest in Europe and North America, but that's not necessarily true in might actually just be the sampling effort that most of the science that's published is um, and has been coming from um, North America and Europe. And so I think the other thing is that we have this bias that we need to handle and work with in this group. And people are making strides toward it. Um, a couple of years ago, I think in 2017, a group studying um, Argyrestia from Asia described 43 new species, which is amazing, like, especially for a group that contains about 200 species, that's a large amount of the species diversity described in a single paper. And I think that that's really a testament to the fact that these regions are undersampled. And if one research group can publish one paper describing 43 new species, um, there's a lot left to be described with this group. In terms of um, Argyrestia south of North America, there's very little um, being done. Um, no one has described a species in South America since 1919. No one has ever, until our paper, described a species from Central America. And so this group is really in the beginnings of understanding um, how many species are there, how many species are left to be described. And especially with these both conservation and agricultural concerns, it's a really important group to make sure we know more about and make sure that we're investing in that biodiversity. I think that's really well said. And I also want to shout out a different paper of yours. Um, it's called Measuring What We Don't Know, Biodiversity Catalogs Reveal Bias in Taxonomic Effort. Um, it was published this year in Bioscience. It is one of my favorite papers of the year. Um, it talks about this and more in reference to spiders uh, using the World Spider Catalog. Yeah, thank you so much for the the plug, Zoe. Like, that was a really fun paper to work on. And yeah, it's consistent with a lot of the biases that we were observing um, in this group. It's, I think, easy to get lost in the sauce and think that um, your obscure little moth or your obscure spiders aren't necessarily reflections of the world history that we are all a part of. Um, but once you start thinking about that, it becomes really apparent and also important to consider when you're doing your science.
That is so true. Um, and thank you so much for talking to us about moths. Um, and so much looking forward to seeing some scorpion research from you and your colleagues uh, in the next couple of years. And anecdotally, just like looking forward to seeing you get to hang out with scorpions all day. <laughs> Thanks so much, Zoe. The feeling is definitely mutual. Aw. Jacob Gorno's paper, Three New Species of the Genus Argerestria from Guatemala, with notes on host plant evolution and Nearctic taxa, is in Volume 51, Issue 201 of Shylap, Revista de Lepodopterologica. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper and to learn more about Jacob and his work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespod. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. I also just want to let you know that this entire time, Corndog has been avidly like trying to attack the pigeon on the other side of the window and so there there may be some like little meows in the background leave at least one in there that to be an easter egg i'll do my best